Let's open our Bibles this afternoon to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. And we'll start there before moving on to other passages as well. As most of us know, Paul's second letter to Timothy, who Paul calls his son the faith, was the last letter that Paul wrote before his martyrdom. It was written from prison in Rome. And uh, from what Paul writes in this epistle, uh, he knew it would be his last letter, but his time was very short. So in this letter, Paul communicates what would understandably be what he felt was his most important or and crucial of instructions to Timothy. In chapter 1, Paul tells Timothy how he longs to see him. Uh, but then he exhorts Timothy not to be ashamed of Paul or to be fearful. He says in verse 7, For God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And then he says, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. In other words, Timothy, be prepared to suffer the same afflictions as I am suffering, and as God will empower you to suffer and to overcome. He says, according to the power of God. God empowers us to suffer persecution for him. Then Paul told Timothy to guard and to proclaim the gospel that Paul had entrusted to him. He says in chapter 1, verse 13, Hold fast. Hold fast. Stand your ground, Timothy. Hold fast the form of sound words, sound doctrine, that is, which thou hast heard of me, in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. And he says, That good thing, the gospel, which was committed unto thee, the New Testament gospel, he says, Keep by the Holy Ghost, which dwelleth in us. In chapter 2, Paul then encourages Timothy to be a good soldier for Jesus. Because like it or not, as Christians, we are all called to battle against the forces of evil in this world. We're all soldiers in the Lord's army. That theme continues in chapter 2 to verse 14, where Paul then instructs Timothy to reject the doctrines and the ravings of men and instead to stand solely on the word of God. Rightly dividing or separating the scriptures, uh, Paul says in verse 15, from the profane and vain babblings of men, that Paul says in verse 16, increase into more ungodliness. Again, Paul says in verse 15, as he said in chapter 1, stand on the word of God alone and separate it from the doctrines of men. Later in chapter 2, then Paul instructs Timothy to flee youthful lusts, those lustful temptations that plague all of us. Flee youthful lusts, Paul says, and instead, Timothy was to pursue godliness and meekness that was becoming of a preacher and a servant of the Lord. In the first half of chapter 3, Paul then warns Timothy of evil days to come. We read in verse 1 of chapter 3, This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. From such, he says, turn away. Such perilous times did arise in Timothy's day, of course, and they have, in fact, continued to the present time. 
when these words are just as applicable today as they were in Timothy's day. And so then, knowing these things will come, in the latter half of chapter 3, Paul again instructs Timothy to stand on the Scriptures alone as his guide and his rule of life. He says in chapter 3 and verse 15, that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise into salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Then he says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, that means complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And therefore, summing up all that he said to this point, Paul then gives Timothy a solemn charge and a very heavy charge, his final marching orders to Timothy as a soldier of Christ, saying in verse 1 of chapter 4, I charge thee therefore, based on everything you just said, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick, meaning the living, and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with all longsuffering and doctrine, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. Then Paul says, that's not all you have to do, Timothy. For in addition to teaching and preaching in the church, you have to be a soul winner outside the church as well. He says, verse 5, But watch thou in all things, that means stay sober, be on guard and vigilant, endure afflictions, for they will come, both from inside the church and from outside. And then Paul says, Do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of thy ministry. And by the way, no man today who wants to serve the Lord can make full proof of his ministry unless he is a soul winner. Every pastor and every deacon as well needs to be a soul winner, needs to do the work of an evangelist to make full proof of his ministry also. All of this was a very heavy responsibility for Paul to lay on Timothy's shoulders with no promise of earthly reward for keeping. But we know that Timothy was full of faith. He was faithful to keep the charge Paul gave him. And there perhaps may be another young man or two hearing this message today that the Lord will also call to keep this charge, to serve him. Paul warned Timothy in chapter 3 that perilous times will come. He said, preach the word, verse 2. Be instant. That means constant and always ready to preach, by the way. In season and out of season. That means when it's popular and when it's not. When they like what you preach and when they don't. He says, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, shall turn away their ears from the truth, be turned unto fables. It is not a pleasant calling or a fun place to be, but no professing preacher who isn't willing to reprove, rebuke, and exhort from the Scriptures really has any right to stand behind the pulpit. However, we are most certainly in such a day right now. The time has come when professing Christians in most churches will not endure sound Bible doctrine. They've turned their ears aside. They want to be entertained and hear happy sermons. They want to be told they can hold on to their sin and will be welcomed into the churches just as they are in their unrepentant, sinful state. And most churches these days are more than willing to accommodate them as well. The time has come when, and we are even now in that day Paul warned Timothy about. Turn now over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In his last letter to Timothy, Paul repeated the warning that Timothy had heard Paul give to this church at Thessalonica many years before. 
this church at Thessalonica, Timothy and Silas helped Paul plant on Paul's second missionary journey. Paul writes here, as Timothy would have known, in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 1, he says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind and be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. This is a very important passage for our time that says much about the day that we are living in. Paul is here saying that before that day dawns, before Jesus returns to gather his elect, two things have to happen first. He says that that man of sin and son of perdition will be revealed, will make his appearance on the world stage and will do as is prophesied about him. But before that happens also, there will be what Paul here calls a falling away. That phrase, falling away, it's translated from one Greek word, apostasia, which we transliterate as apostasy. It's a very negative term, meaning a rebellion, a form of anarchy and a departure from the faith and from the truth, just as Paul warned in 2 Timothy. So Paul is here saying that before Christ's return, there will be a general departure from the faith, as we actually see clearly and somewhat frightfully being fulfilled in this hour. On many levels and in many areas of doctrine, many of which we have done our best to expose, many cults and isms have arisen amidst a vast multitude of heresies and satanic movements and general apostasy among professing Christians that characterizes this day in which we are living. Perilous times have come. One of the many departures from the true faith, and perhaps one of the most prevalent, is the multi-gospel heresy of Schofieldite dispensationalism with its pre-tribulation rapture, the proponents of which turn this very passage on its head and upside down in an attempt to make it say the precise opposite of what Paul is saying here. Notice here that Paul is warning this church not to be deceived, and the first lie of the Schofieldite pre-tribbers is that the deception Paul was warning against here was that some in the church believed they had missed the rapture and were already experiencing the tribulation period. But that is not the deception Paul is addressing here. What Paul is saying here is, don't be deceived by some who have taught you that Christ's return is imminent. Because it is not an any moment imminent event. Certain events have to happen first. Paul says in verse 3, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come. The day Paul is referring to here is, of course, the same day he describes in verses 1 to 2, the day of Christ, the day of the coming of our Lord Jesus and are gathering together unto him, when, as Paul says in chapter 1 of this letter, Christ comes in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. All of that takes place on the same day. In Revelation 19, we see that Christ comes in flaming fire to destroy the wicked, to cast the beast and the false prophet into the lake of fire, and to bind Satan the devil for a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal on him that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And then we see the first resurrection in chapter 20, verse 4. All that takes place on the day of Christ that Paul refers to here in verse 2. Don't be troubled, Paul says, as that the day of Christ is at hand, as though it is an imminent event with no other prophesied events preceding it. One element or symptom of the rampant, pervasive apostasy that characterizes the day in which we live is the willingness of every 
Schofieldite pre-trib rapturist that I've ever debated or contended with about this passage. In order to find a pre-trib rapture in this passage is that they completely twist and pervert even the very clear meaning of that word apostasia, here translated falling away, to mean an escape or a departure from the earth, rather than what it clearly means, which is a departure from the faith and from the truth. As I've said before, I found that some of the worst twisters and perverters of Scripture are the Ruckmanites, followers of that rabid heretic, semi-lunatic Peter Ruckman. Those people foolishly call anyone who cites to the Greek to expound the Scripture as Bible correctors, but they themselves dare to twist this passage to say the exact opposite of what Paul is saying. Even if we don't look at that Greek word apostasia, from which we translate and derive the terms apostasy and apostate, because that's what the word means. But even if we just use the language of the King James Bible, Paul says here in verse 3 that there will be a falling away before our gathering together to Christ. So I point out the Ruckmanite pre-trib rapturist who try to argue that this falling away is the rapture, that a falling away is moving in the exact opposite direction of being caught up. Falling away means downward progression. Apostasia means departure from the faith and from the truth. And I believe beyond any doubt that we are right now in the early stages of fulfillment of this apostasy, the falling away, that Paul said would precede Christ's return. The ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy yet to occur when that man of sin is revealed. And many professing, make-believing Christians will then pin their hopes on him, just as they got behind Donald Trump. That lying, boastful, and narcissistic scoundrel as their deliverer. So Schofieldite pre-trib rapturism is one issue that has deceived the vast majority of professing evangelical or non-Catholic Christians in our day. Another is the ecumenical Catholic charismatic renewal movement and unification of Pentecostals, Protestants, and Evangelicals with the Roman Catholic harlot. I need to address that subject very soon. But then there's another element of this dreadful apostasy that characterizes this day in which we live that I want to address today and focus in on for a few minutes. I touched on this recently in our expose of the Asbury Revival. And that's the way the now global LGBT queer agenda has invaded mainline Protestant, evangelical, non-denominational, and even so-called Baptist churches that claim to uphold the scriptures as their authority for faith and practice. This is actually not just a recent development. Various liberal synods of the Lutheran, Presbyterian, and Episcopal churches have even been allowing ordination of homosexual clergy for over a decade now. But the issue has now been brought back into the limelight of public attention by one glaring recent development in a move that may indeed, I think, have global consequences. The Governing Assembly of the Church of England, known as the General Synod, voted three weeks ago in favor of the blessing of same-sex marriages and of welcoming homosexual couples into their assemblies. The assembly stopped short of allowing same-sex marriages to be performed by the church and also left unchanged the definition of marriage as being only between a man and a woman. Uh, an article posted in The Guardian, Church of England priests will be permitted to bless the civil marriages of same-sex couples in a profound shift in the church's stance on homosexuality after a historic vote by its governing body. The first blessings for gay couples could happen this summer. The article says individual churches will be encouraged to state clearly whether they will offer blessings to avoid confusion and disappointment. In an impassioned debate lasting more than eight hours, 
the Church of England's National Assembly, the General Synod, voted by 250 votes to 181 to back a proposal by the bishops intended to end years of painful divisions and disagreement over sexuality. By the way, as a side note, the bishops' vote was far more lopsided, 36 to 4, in favor of this amendment, in favor of changing their policy. Back to the article, it says, The Senate also agreed that the church will apologize for the harm it has caused to LGBTQ people. Conservatives narrowly succeeded in amending the motion to state that the church's doctrine of marriage as between a man and a woman was unchanged, although progressives were dismayed by the amendment. It says, Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and Stephen Cottrell, the Archbishop of York, so they hoped the decision would mark a new beginning for the Church of England, saying it has been a long road to get us to this point. They said, for the first time, the Church of England will publicly, unreservedly, and joyfully welcome same-sex couples in church, etc., etc. And it says, Sarah Mullally, the Bishop of London, this woman who is now the Bishop of London, who led the debate, and side note number two, that's another element of the apostasy of our day, that being the ordination of women, which the Bible also clearly forbids. And then to let a woman actually lead this debate is another issue, I would say. But the article says, Sarah Mullally, the Bishop of London, who led the debate, said this is a moment of hope for the church. But she added, I know that what we have proposed as a way forward does not go nearly far enough for many, etc., etc. The article says, gay rights campaigners were frustrated that their demand for a proposal by marriage equality be put before the Senate within two years was rejected by 52 to 45%. It says the gay rights campaigner Peter Tatchell said, the offer of blessings to same-sex partners is an insult. It didn't go far enough, he says. Every heterosexual man and woman in England has a right to marry in their parish church, but not LGBTQ couples. That's discrimination, and discrimination is not a Christian value, he said. That's a great argument, is it not? Discrimination is not a Christian value. In other words, as we talked about last week, judge not. Jesus said, right? Wrong. He said, don't judge hypocritically and don't judge merely by the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. And remember what did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 2? He that is spiritual judgeth all things. We are to judge and we are to discriminate between what is true and what is false, between what is good and what is evil, between what is Christian and what is not Christian, and what is acceptable behavior for a Christian and what is not. And all these things are specifically determined by God's Word, the Bible. We are to discriminate, because the Bible discriminates. And only an unregenerate and rather unintelligent unbeliever would dare argue that discrimination is not a Christian value. So this issue, of course, it's a widespread issue, and it goes far beyond the Church of England. And as stated, it has also invaded so-called Baptist churches. When I first got saved, in the spring of 1987, it was from immersing myself at that time into an NIV Bible while listening to men like Oliver B. Green and Lester Roloff preaching on Christian radio. I had a real encounter with the Lord that changed my life, and afterward I was actually addicted to teaching programs on Christian radio. They were broadcast all day long at that time on an AM Christian radio station in Des Moines, Iowa. That was back before Internet. I Then when I was working for an architectural firm, and I would sit at my drafting board with headphones on all day, listening to these teaching programs almost all day long. I remember John MacArthur came on at 9 o'clock a.m., then Chuck Swindoll, and then Charles Stanley came on around 10, as I recall, with his In Touch program. At that time, 
there were a few preachers in Christian media that were more respected than Charles Stanley. For decades, he was a senior pastor of the First Baptist Church of Atlanta. His In Touch program was broadcast worldwide via both radio and television. Some of you may have listened to him in the past. At one time, Charles Stanley actually also served as president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And in contrast to prosperity gospel heretics like Kenneth Hagin and Kenneth Copeland, Charles Stanley had a reputation for presenting very practical messages solidly grounded in Scripture. He'd always say, but the Bible says. And he didn't pull any punches. The fact is, though, as most Southern Baptists do, Charles Stanley preached a gospel of easy believism, as Jack Hiles preached and many Baptists do preach. Easy believism, that you don't have to repent of your sin to be saved. You just have to believe in Jesus. And, of course, that's the gospel that his son, Andy Stanley, was raised on. I remember when Andy Stanley was raised up to the position of associate pastor at First Baptist Atlanta and the minister of students there. And now and then he would preach messages on his dad's in-touch program, which at the time I, I thought were pretty good. I was a baby Christian then, but I was learning fast, and I thought his preaching was pretty good. But there are apparently problems in the Stanley home. Charles Stanley went through a bitter divorce while refusing to step down from the pastorate. After then a sharp feud arose between father and son, Andy left First Baptist Atlanta and founded his own church, which has now spread to several churches, satellite churches. Since that time, Andy Stanley's influence in Baptist and evangelical circles has actually grown to surpass that of his dad. The two later resolved their differences, though, and Charles Stanley has given his blessing to Andy's ministry. And also, sadly, to Andy's acceptance and promotion of the LGBTQ agenda into his church. As Seth Dunn of Pulpit and Pen website put it in one article, Charles Stanley gave Andy his respected name as well as a start in vocational ministry at First Baptist Atlanta. Frankly, Charles Stanley, he writes, unleashed on the visible church at large one of the most dangerous heretics of modern times. Despite his position of influence, Charles has done nothing to warn the world about Andy. Sadly, he's done quite the opposite. And I would add that includes Charles Stanley having endorsed Andy's popular seeker-friendly book published in 2016, titled Deep and Wide, Creating Churches Unchurched People Love to Attend, in which one online description says Andy Stanley explains, quote, three essential ingredients for creating irresistible atmospheres, as well as his strategy for preaching and programming to both mature believers and cynical unbelievers. The immediate problem with that whole concept, of course, as every mature Christian should know, is that Christ's church is not to be a place for cynical unbelievers to be drawn to. And one group of cynical unbelievers that Andy Stanley is intentionally drawing into his church is unrepentant, practicing homosexuals and gay couples, who rather than being encouraged to repent of their sin, are instead affirmed in their sinful lifestyle. As an example, here's a few statements that Andy Stanley posted to Twitter. He says, homosexuality is, quote, really a disability. Telling people they have to stop being gay to follow Christ is like taking a wheelchair away from a guy who can't walk, end quote. And then directly contradicting Paul's clear statement in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, and also just as Paul warned in 2 Timothy 3, 5, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. And he posted, quote, I believe in gay people. Some people are gay. They can't change. Then in another post, Andy stated as follows, 
We need to make room for gay men who choose to be married to each other in our churches because that's as close as they can get to a New Testament framework of marriage. Then at a gathering of pastors and Christians at the 2022 annual drive conference, Andy brought a message on the subject in which he never says homosexuality is a sin or that homosexuals can be delivered and set free from their sin. And instead, he encouraged all in attendance at that conference to welcome unrepentant queers into their churches. I have a brief clip here from that message. I want you to listen very closely to this. Figure out how to get straight people as excited about serving and engaging as the gay men and women I know, we would have a volunteer backlog. That's my experience in our churches. Well, I, I'm a gay person, I'll just read it to you. A gay person, when I say gay, men and women, okay? A gay person who still wants to attend church after the way the church has treated the gay community? I'm telling you, they have more faith than I do. They have more faith than a lot of you. A gay person who knows, you know what? I might not be accepted here, but I'm going to try it anyway. Have you ever done that as a straight person? Do you, where do you go that you're not sure you're going to be accepted and you go over and over and over and over? Only your in-law's house. That's the only place you go where you know you're not completely accepted, but you go over and over and over, and it's because you have to. But other than the in-laws, what environment do you continue to step foot in knowing at any moment you may feel ostracized? No place. I'm telling you, the gay men and women who grew up in church and the gay men and women who've come to faith in Christ as adults who want to participate in our church, oh my goodness. I know 1 Corinthians 6 and I know Leviticus and I know Romans 1. It's so interesting to talk about all that stuff. But just, oh my goodness, a gay man or woman who wants to worship their heavenly father who did not answer the cry of their heart when they were 12 and 13 and 14 and 15. God said no. And they still love God. We have some things to learn from a group of men and women who love Jesus that much and who want to worship with us. And I know the verses. I know the clobber passages, right? we got to figure this out. And you know what? I think you are. So that's what the so-called Baptist, Andy Stanley, says about homosexuality. These people are born that way, they can't help it, and they figure it out when they're 12 to 15 years old. I would add after being recruited into that lifestyle in the public schools. That audio clip opened with Andy saying, quote, If I can figure out how to get straight people as excited about serving and engaging as the gay men and women I know, we would have a volunteer backlog. That's probably true for his church. Because straight people, Christians who know their Bibles and want to serve God, would find another church and avoid Andy Stanley like the plague. Then he says, a gay person who still wants to attend church after the way the church has treated the gay community, I'm telling you they have more faith than I do. They have more faith than you do, he said. And that's probably true because apparently Andy Stanley obviously doesn't believe the Bible and has no biblical faith. In all likelihood, he's probably an unregenerate reprobate. He says, I know 1 Corinthians 6, and I know Leviticus, and I know Romans 1, and it's so interesting to talk about all that stuff. But in effect, he says, I don't really believe it. I know what God says, basically, and he says, but I don't care. You know, I know the clobber passages, and it's interesting to talk about what the Bible says, but I really don't care, says Andy Stanley. As Seth Dunn put it, Andy Stanley is one of the most dangerous heretics 
in modern times. But the sad fact is that these attitudes and this position toward the LGBTQ agenda is spreading like wildfire throughout pop Christianity. We have to allow, we have to integrate gay men and women into our church and let them serve here without requiring that they repent of their sin. Briefly, turn over to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, we read Christ's letter of warning to his church at Thyatira, where Jesus said, verse 18 in Revelation 2, Unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Jesus says, And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, said Jesus, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. Then in very strong language, Jesus says, And I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I'll give unto every one of you according to your works. The reason I brought us to this book and to this passage of Scripture is because Andy Stanley and the Church of England and every other church that says unrepentant homosexuals who are continuing in that lifestyle are welcomed in our church, are doing exactly the same thing that that woman Jezebel was doing in Thyatira. They're teaching and seducing Christ's servants to remain in sin, that they can live it up, and revel in it, and still be welcomed into the church. Andy Stanley has many problems, but two of which I'm going to mention here. His first problem is that he preaches a false gospel of easy believism that says you can be saved without repenting of your sin. You can be saved and you can hold on to your sin. And therefore, since the church is a hospital for sinners instead of a hotel for saints, they say, you can bring your unrepentant sin right in here with you. That's Andy Stanley's first problem. And that's also the first problem in many, many churches across this land in this day of dreadful apostasy, in this apostasy that we're going through. Then Andy Stanley's second problem, and that of his entire ilk of pro-LGBTQ apostate so-called preachers, that of the Church of England and the PCA, Presbyterian Church of the USA, and many other churches, Lutheran, etc., that they have all bought into the devil and the world's big lie. They bought into the big lie that homosexuals cannot help it because they were born that way. They are born that way and we have to let them continue in their sin. May I suggest that if that was true, God would never have declared the sin of sodomy and homosexuality to be a sin and he would never have rained down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. Of course, this entire agenda, the LGBTQ agenda in the churches, is a huge attack directly against the authority and the reliability of the Word of God, the Bible. But with every other doctrine the Bible is clear about, we have to stand on the Word of God even when the entire world stands against us. This excuse that these people cannot help it because they were born that way 
can be used to excuse any and all sin. We can just as easily say that every adulterer or that thief or that alcoholic or that habitual liar has to be excused and allowed to continue in his sin because he was born that way. They can't help it. They were born that way. Okay, I'll give you that. But Jesus said that's why we have to be born again. We've got to be born again. The fact is that we were all born in Adam, in a fallen nature. We all inherited a sin nature. We all have a drawing or a propensity towards certain sins. For some it's alcohol. For others it's pornography. For some it's homosexuality. We are all easily beset, the Bible says, by various sins. That's why the writer of the Hebrews, though, says in Hebrews chapter 12, 1 to 2, he says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about by such so great a cloud of witnesses, that great hall of faith in chapter 11, let us lay aside every weight, and Paul says there, the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that's set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus died for us to set us free from our sin, whatever that sin is. And we have to look to Him to remain free from it. So being born that way is not an excuse for any of us, for the alcoholic, for the adulterer, or for the sodomite homosexual. We all have to repent of our sin, receive our Savior's grace, and be born again. Let's turn over to 1 Corinthians 6, one of the clobber passages that Andy Stanley knows but chooses for his church to ignore, actually for his group of several churches, to ignore, to violate, and to teach others to violate as well. 1 Corinthians 6. Again, we were all born in Adam. We all inherited a sin nature. And all men have sinful desires and lusts. In Romans chapter 1, Paul shows the sinfulness of living out our sinful desires. And putting them into action. He says in Romans 1 verse 26. For this cause God gave them up to vile affections. That means sinful desires. He says for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. He says in Romans 1 27. And likewise also the men. Leaving the natural use of the woman. Burned in their lust one toward another. Men working with men. That which is unseemly. And he says and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat, meaning they received the due penalty for their sin. We all have sinful desires, lustful, vile affections. We did when we were unsaved. But it's the putting into practice of sinful de- desires that then becomes sin. So Paul then says here in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Paul says, Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, that's, in, by the way, any sexual relationship outside of marriage, nor idolaters, false religionists, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners. None of these shall inherit the kingdom of God. By the way, the word effeminate here in verse 9 speaks directly to the issue of transgenderism. Labels as sin. Men who cross-dress like women to act in feminine, feminine ways. And this phrase, abusers of themselves with mankind, in verse 9, is a direct reference to sodomites, male homosexuals. It's actually a direct reference to the very wording of Leviticus 18, verse 22, 
where in the law God says, Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is an abomination. And again, uh, the law says in Leviticus 20, verse 13, If a man also lie with mankind as he lieth with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. These things listed here in 1 Corinthians 9-10 through 10 are all, every one of them, specifically declared by God to be sins. Okay, That's undisputable. These things are sin. All these things are forbidden practices. And I believe in God's eyes the sin of adultery is every bit as wicked and sinful as the sin of sodomy. A lot of Christians want to focus on you know, the homosexuality, but these are all sins God has decreed to be sin. There are also many actions in the Bible that God declares to be sin that are not listed here. This is not an exhaustive list of sins that will keep people out of heaven, for which they shall not inherit the kingdom of God. The law, for instance, forbids a man to lie carnally with his father's wife. That's also a sin, even though it's not listed here. But clearly it's a sin, and clearly Paul says here, clearly homosexuality is a sin. That's undeniable. Notice in this passage also that this Paul says here that those who continue in that sin in an unrepentant manner are not saved. If they refuse to repent of it, they're not saved. They shall not inherit the kingdom of God. This is what the word of God declares. Andy Stanley and the Church of England. Andy Stanley knows what this passage says but does not care. Furthermore, God's word says those who get saved but then fall back into an unrepentant pattern of sin are then to be put out of the church. They're not to be brought in and welcomed into the church. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That's true for all these sins listed here and for those not listed. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul deals with another sin that's not listed back there in chapter 6. He says in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 5, If you report it commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. Okay? Incestual relationship here. He's got his father's wife. And you're puffed up and have not rather mourned that he hath done this, that he might be taken away from you. For verily, Paul says, is absent in body, but present in spirit. I have judged already, Paul says, as though I were present, concerning him that has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together in my, in my spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul says down here in verse 11, But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such a one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them that are without, outside the church? Do not ye judge them that are within. Yes, we are supposed to judge. Paul says, Them that are without, those are outside the church, God judgeth. Then Paul says, Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Paul says, put the man out of the church. Put him out. Unrepentant sin is not to be tolerated in the church. We're all born sinners. We're all born into this world with a sinful nature, with a sin nature. And I believe that possibly from various influences in our childhood, perhaps as a result of traits inherited or learned from parents, different people develop various propensities to different sins some to alcohol, some to other sins. The queer community has tried and failed, by the way, to prove by scientific means that what the Bible calls sinful desires 
are a result of mere chemical reactions and physical processes. But it was a fool's errand to try to prove that because finding such proof is quite impossible. And that's because man, who was initially created in God's image, is far more than just chemical reactions that somehow evolved into human beings over billions of years. Man was created with not only a physical body, but also with a soul, his mind and his intellect and consciousness, and also with his spirit. Sinful desires do not result from physical or chemical reactions in the body. Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, verse 21, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, lustful eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. These, All these could have been listed there in 1 Corinthians 6 also. Jesus says all these things come from within and defile the man. They come from the heart, Jesus says. This is a spiritual issue, not a physical issue. Evil desires result and emanate from the heart, not from the body and not from the way a man is born. The wonderful thing, back to 1 Corinthians 6, is the great truth that Paul reveals here in verse 11. After he says in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 6, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. But then he says, And such were some of you. This is what you used to be. You used to be effeminate. You used to be a cross-dresser. You used to be transsexual. You used to be a homosexual. You used to be a thief. You used to be a covetous. This is what you used to be, Paul says, but ye are washed. You got saved. Ye are washed. You are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Paul says here, point blank, not only these things are sins, but that every sinner can be delivered from these sins. Every homosexual can be delivered. He can be washed, sanctified, justified, and delivered from that sin. You cannot tell me, based on what the Bible teaches here and elsewhere, that a homosexual cannot be delivered from his sin. Every homosexual sodomite can be delivered from his sinful lifestyle, just as I was delivered from my very sinful addictions when I got saved. I'm going to say this. Homosexuals are not special. Okay, They don't deserve special attention. They're not to be allowed special privileges with their sin. They have to repent of their sin, truly receive Lord Jesus as Savior, as Lord, and have deliverer from their sin. Paul says, and such were some of you, but you're not that anymore. You're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That verse, verse 11, in and of itself, properly interpreted, is actually one of the greatest summaries in the New Testament of what it means to be truly saved. And it tells us that there can be no true salvation without transformation. First, the verse says, and such were some of you, meaning they no longer revel in those old sins they were saved out of. They have been transformed by the washing and sanctification and justification that Paul speaks of here, which is exactly what Jesus meant when he said to Nicodemus, In John chapter 3, verse 3, Verily, verily, meaning, mark my words here, Nicodemus, 
Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Very similar language to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 10. Jesus then went on in that passage to explain that being born again is being reborn spiritually in a supernatural act done by God that transforms the repentant believer in the Lord Jesus into a new creature. And that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things pass away and all things are become new. Homosexuals are not special. Their sin is not special. They are not to be allowed special privileges in the church because of their sin. As for us, we as a church, and each one of us in our personal lives must do as Paul told Timothy to do. We have to hold fast. We have to stand our ground in an evil day wherein perilous times have come. We have to stand on the clear teaching of the Bible even when it appears the whole world is standing against us. Now, there's much more I could say, much more actually I wanted to say, but that's what I have for you today. And I'll just go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, Lord God, I just uh, thank you for the clarity of your word. I thank you, Lord, that if we'll just uh, dig in deep, we can find answers to these problems of life that many struggle with. Lord, I pray for anyone that may hear this message online who is struggling with the sin of homosexuality. We all struggle with sin but we can all be delivered from it by being born again. Paul says, such were some of you. And every homosexual can be delivered from his sin. And I pray that you would show, show them that, anyone who's hearing this message online. We love you, Lord, and we praise you for this great salvation we have in Jesus. It's in his, his name that we pray. Amen.